This is the Author Archive podcast. Today, Vicky Spratt, who's a journalist specializing in housing, not housing costs, but housing, not housing prices, but housing. Her new book, Tenants, the people on the front line of Britain's housing emergency. Vicky, reading this drove me into a fury. What did writing it do to you? Oh, hello, and thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm at once sorry to hear that that was your reaction to reading Tenants, but I am also glad because that's exactly the reaction that I think one must have to the housing emergency or housing crisis, as it's more co commonly called in this country. Writing this book, <laughs> what did it do to me? Um, it's a really good question. I want to answer honestly. But before I do, I want to say that whatever I have been through is absolutely nothing compared to what the people I interview day in, day out in my role as a housing journalist are going through. And that is acute housing stress caused by eviction, unaffordable rents, bad conditions, rogue landlords. Um, and it causes severe psychological distress um so that is always my focus and i think that should be the for, you know front of mind for anyone who, who reads this book but of course i am only human and it did take a take a toll on me really 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 big toll um something i've not really spoken about very much because i don't want to take away from the stories that i'm telling and I think they always must be my priority. I'm just a conduit for those stories in a way that they can reach an audience and hopefully make those in power think about the decisions they're making. But it's it's sometimes incredibly challenging. And I think it's caused me to think a lot about, you know, what is the role of a journalist or a, a writer, reporter? What 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 kind of intervention is ethical for me when I'm seeing someone in distress? what kind of emotional involvement is ethical for me um, when, I'm, when I'm with someone who's going through something. And there are different schools of thought on this, but I think ultimately, actually, I have to be quite strict because I'm there to tell the story. I'm there to bear witness to it. I'm there to record it. I will obviously have a reaction. I'm not a robot. And in the book and in my reporting more broadly, I do try and make it clear that I'm having a reaction. And I think it would be very difficult not to. And often that reaction is, incredible frustration and anger that I'm speaking to someone who's who's being made destitute by by a, a financial system and a housing system that's completely dysfunctional but but I, I do I do have to keep a certain amount of distance and I think that's is right that a journalist does that because we're not social workers we can't always fix things we can do our best to shine a light on them bring them bring them into the light bring them into the public consciousness and hopefully and sometimes we do change policy and actually you know make up local authorities sit up and take notice but i i've considered the role of journalism very very carefully through the process of writing this book um because i think if i if i get too involved personally and of course i am involved and i'm in touch with many of the people in the book still but if i get too involved then i can't i can't take a step back and tell the stories um so it's kind of, that's an open-ended answer and I'm, one I'm still figuring out. And I've spoken to other journalists who report on similarly 
um, devastating social evils, um, like migration, for instance. Um, you know, what, where, where, where should we stand in, in relation to, to these stories? Um, it's something I'm still thinking about, uh, but yes, it, 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 I'm, I'm exhausted often when I come out of, out of situations where I've been holding space for someone who's going through something horrific. And, and it's wonderful you report it, but you don't report it like a robot. There is energy, there's passion, there's commitment behind it. And I just, reading the book, I would have liked to have thought there were goodies and baddies. There were black hats and white hats. But it's more subtle than that, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And thank you. I Yes, there is a lot of emotion in this book and a lot of anger from me. Right, just anger. I've been reporting on this for 10 years. How on earth is it getting worse, not better? The housing crisis is getting bigger. More people are in temporary accommodation. Rents are rising to hit historic highs. So are house prices. Yes, there is so much emotion from me in this book because I am regularly left mind boggled by politicians. Um, but goodies and baddies. Yeah, I was very careful in the book not to fall into or rather to complicate some of the ideas that I see regularly banded around about who's responsible for the housing crisis. I think it's very easy to be like, oh, landlords are evil. Let's blame all the landlords. Now, let me be clear. Some landlords behave absolutely abominably and their behavior, according to the law, is criminal. So that it's just not good enough that they're getting away with it and that they're behaving the way that they are. But it's too simplistic to say that rent is good, landlords evil. The power imbalance between renters and landlords is completely off, needs to be addressed. The government are looking at doing that with the, the white paper on renting reform. But this is so much bigger than that. This is the responsibility of politicians in recent decades who have failed to look after the people that elect them, that they are in charge of running the country on behalf of. That is who is responsible. They are letting bad landlords off the hook. They are letting offshore investors tear this housing market up and make a profit from it. And they are facilitating a system where those investors and investment funds can profit from things like temporary accommodation, which are a result of an unstable private rented sector and a social housing shortage. So who do I think is ultimately responsible? I think the buck has to stop with politicians. And I think that's a point I really wanted to make in the book. I'm not gonna, I mean, indeed I do talk about the problems with investment funds and landlords, but ultimately if politicians wanted to, they could intervene and legislate and sort things out. So I think that, but there is another layer to this responsibility that I really wanted to get across in the book, and, and I, I hope it does come across, which is ultimately we're all responsible, right? We're all complicit because we all have a vote. We live in a democracy. We're all able to learn about the housing market and learn about the systems, particularly those, those of us who are not experiencing housing stress. And then make informed choices about where we put our energy, whether that's into local grassroots activism, protest, or simply how we vote. So I think, yeah, the, the, it, it's not 
I'm not going to fall into the trap of saying landlords, bad, evil, evil, let's slag them off for 300 pages. And indeed, that's not what I've done. Because I think I want people to come away from the book feeling informed enough to start making decisions about how they want to interact with the problem of housing. I've learned from your book, as of a year or so back, only 17% of people rented from housing associations or the local authority. But that doesn't stop um, our politicians coming and saying, I know, I've got an idea. If you're in um, a, a public housing, you will sell it to you. I mean, in 17%, that's not going to make any difference at all. When the Thatcher government sold off all of the uh, council housing, it made a huge difference. But we're not there anymore. It's just they give us words to get mm -hmm. votes, but the words don't actually mean anything. Oh, well, yes, David, you're quite right. And of course, you're talking about right to buy and, and one of Margaret Thatcher's flagship policies, <laughs> arguably one of the most successful policies of all time. Right to buy, giving council tenants the right to buy their homes. It was an incredibly successful policy and it did create a new generation and indeed a new class of, of homeowner. But the recent announcement from Boris Johnson that he wants to extend that to housing association tenants, you're quite right to know it won't make the kind of impact that it made in the 80s and 90s because lots of those homes have been sold. I'm not sure that we will ever see the policy work on the scale that it worked when it was first introduced. And, and what's more, as a result of that policy, we now have a social housing deficit. Different people will tell you this isn't true, but I've yet to see a compelling argument. Like Compared to other countries in Europe, yes, we do have a large social housing stock, but we also have a huge waiting list and we are not replacing social homes at the rate that we were selling them off. We've got a huge problem. So expanding the policy that decimated social housing supply at a time when we need it more than ever just is completely bonkers. Bonkers. There's a there's a, a phrase that a sentence that shot up from the page in your book. We all have the feeling that something must happen. Something's going to happen. Something must occur. And didn't you write in the paper last weekend, we're talking on the 1st of July, that a housing crash must happen and that will change everything. Do you have this sense in your heart, in your journalist heart, that we're on the edge of something? Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the two parts of that question in turn. Um, first and foremost, yes, I did write that sentence. I had forgotten, but thank you for reminding <laughs> Yeah, I, you I did. I, what, what I'm saying there, and this is, you know, the sense that I've had now for from being a journalist for 10 years and working through Scottish referendum, Brexit, else has happened the pandemic yes. probably another big big moment that i'm missing there um but those are those are the three the three main ones that really that really have stuck with me also i've worked through some good things right like the um referendum on abortion in ireland and the granting of abortion to women in northern ireland which was still not really working out but i i think I've, i feel in my career so far, and I'm sure most journalists of all ages feel this way, but I've lived through some pretty kind of like epoch-making 
moments. And um, with housing, I've, I've watched the housing crisis kind of unfold constantly as these different changes, leaving the EU, the UK deciding to stay as one for now, um, people being granted rights. And, and, and I've watched as housing has not really shifted. And in fact, as, as the housing crisis has worsened, and I, I keep coming back to the same, the same thing, which is how are we not getting this politically or personally? Like everybody needs a home, it's so fundamental. And yet we're arguing about whether or not to stay in the European Union. Well, we haven't even managed to sort out shelter for our fellow human beings. So what on earth are we doing? And I think I really do have a sense that something is gonna give. That is a kind of a gut feeling sense, just speaking to people up and down the country and hearing how cross they are. And actually there are other articles I've written where I think the vote to leave the EU was probably connected to that frustration for some people who haven't made lots of money on their home as others have in the last few decades. But that's maybe a story for another time. Um, so I do think something is going to happen. And I'm looking at the economic forecast, rising inflation, rising interest rates, rising house prices. The cost of servicing those loans is about to get a whole lot more expensive for buyers and people who aren't on fixed rate mortgages. And I'm thinking, gosh, oh, 2008. I started as a journalist shortly after the 2008 global financial crash. That's the other thing that's happened. And I'm like, oh, I've got real deja vu. I'm interviewing economists. I'm getting real deja vu. They've got deja vu. So yeah, I do have a feeling that something is going to happen. To, to answer the second part of your question, will it be a house price crash, a housing market crash? Well, look, I'm not an economist, so I'm not going to make predictions about the economy. That would be wrong of me to do. It's my job to speak to experts. But I think something will have to give based on what they're saying. Will that be that house prices don't rise as fast as they have been since the pandemic began, but we're already seeing them slow down. So yeah, probably. Will there be a house price downturn? Lots of economists don't like the word crash and I do understand why. I think that's also potentially quite likely. What scale that is on remains to be seen. There are so many factors, but I think we're in a really, really interesting economic conundrum because our economy is now so reliant on house price growth to give us the illusion of growth because we don't really make anything in this country anymore. And this is all connected to everything in the book. Um, I think something, something will eventually have to give. And I think politicians have started to wake up to that. That's why you're seeing Michael Gove pump out reform because he's a really smart guy, whatever your politics, right? Every time I sit down with him in a room and listen to him speak, he gets it and he can see not just that his party are going to struggle to keep getting elected if home ownership goes into decline, which it is and will continue to if house prices keep rising beyond wages. But also, I think, you know, I, I, I understand that some listeners may not agree with me, but I think even conservative politicians have humanity. Some, some of the ones <laughs> I have met certainly do. Whether you agree with them or not is, is a different matter. Whether I agree with them or not is a different matter. But I... I listen to him speak and he can see that we're heading for a humanitarian disaster if housing isn't sorted out and that is what this is it is a humanitarian disaster i think it's a it's an economic problem and it's it's a humanitarian problem um i'm not gonna say that one thing or another is definitely gonna happen or not but we're in a mess we're in a mess there's a word that you 
want to bring in when you talk about the solutions in your book and you talk about the beverage of 80 years ago and uh, one of the things that that had was the the dream of sort of integration that there weren't there weren't different camps and the thing that you and the word that you use and i was quite surprised to see it there was bringing love into the planning um, and I presume what you mean is bringing care, bringing humanity, because that seems hugely lacking, totally lacking. Mm. Well, thank you for picking up on that. So it's something I, I mean, I'm, I'm a journalist, of course, and I write in many different ways, depending on which publication and, and is asking me to write, but something you know, about writing a book that you have a lot more space to explore ideas than you do in a short column that's tied to the news cycle. And having looked and studied the birth of the welfare state while writing this book and looking at the, the William Beveridge Report, which for anyone listening who doesn't know, is basically the founding document of our welfare state. It was a big report into poverty and how we end it that, that concluded that we needed national insurance, welfare state, benefits, social housing, and an NHS. People in this country, when it was published in the 40s, were so, sorry, or was it 30s? Gosh. No, it wasn't. It was 40s. Yeah, we're talking on a Friday, listeners. Forgive me. In the early 40s. And my brain is completely zapped by the end of the week. Um, When it was published, you know, after Second World War, that's drawing to a close. This report is published. People queued up in the street to buy a copy in their thousands because they were so engaged with the idea of reform after two world wars, poverty and destruction. And they voted for politicians who drove that reform through. But what really underpinned for me the reforms of that period in time was okay, first and foremost, they they realized that there was an economic imperative to keeping people well, but they also, and by they, I mean the reformers and politicians and and people like Beveridge, who were studying and writing, writing, you know, reports on the state of poverty across the country. It was compassionate and it was loving and it was caring. And I think something that has really been lost in my lifetime, I'm 34, is a sense of civic love. Now, when we say, when I say love, I'm not talking about romantic love, um, although I'm not sure the two are quite as distinct as people like to think they are, because what, what is more human than connecting with other people and showing them love and care and compassion and understanding and trying to relate to where they're coming from? You know, I think that's really been lost in politics in my lifetime. Um, and, and also in, in, in other places on social media and the way we all, all talk to each other, I find it horrifying. And as I said before, there are lots of people I do not agree with, lots of people who have ideas that I think are really, really morally repugnant. But I also would always engage with them. <laughs> well, maybe not always. There might be, there are some red lines. Let me be clear, there are some, there are some red lines. But I think, I think we've really, really lost in our politics um, this, this idea of civic love, which, as I say in the book, you know, it's not my idea. It's an idea of lots and lots of great reformers, 
you know, the, the late great Martin Luther King being one of them and, and, and many, many and, and philosophers. And Martha Nussbaum's written a whole book on this. And I think if we could center that again, in terms of how we think about social problems, we might find that we get a lot further than we currently are. And I, I think housing is a uniquely interesting problem to consider through the lens of what a more loving and compassionate approach might look like one imbued with fewer value judgments and less self-interest. Because I think a big part of why we have a housing crisis is because we're also attached to making money from property because we've been sold that as an acceptable thing to do. And indeed, I understand it because wages really don't pay people enough. So who doesn't want to play in the public casino that is the housing market in the hope that they can get rich overnight? But what that's done is not made, made us think about society as as an ecosystem which which it absolutely is right like you and I are connected if I if I get sick and I can't work and I have to access benefits you've paid into a system that means that I can do that and vice versa and your pension you know I've I'm I'm contributing towards that like we are all linked we are in an ecosystem at the end of the day like we're just animals on a rock in outer space and, but but somehow we don't we don't think about it that way we don't we don't think that we're connected and that our actions impact each other and that the world that we live in is fragile and that the e economic systems that we all participate in are fragile and I suppose what I'm trying to get at is that we really really must bring compassion and humanity back to these conversations it's bad for you and it's bad for me that there are people around this country who are suffering and struggling and living in frankly abhorrent conditions and well um, my utopian vision goes even further i like to think that we are members of a species stuck on this rock and unless we're more responsible uh we will just blow the whole bloody thing up um and it will become unlivable and the well, idea well, it, is. it is becoming unlivable and you're quite right and as i say in the book you know you may have picked up on this too i connect the housing crisis to the climate yeah. crisis, the environment crisis, bad housing is not energy efficient. That costs poor people lots of money and it's bad for our shared home, the planet. We are a species. We are just animals. We are in an ecosystem. It's all linked. And I mean, I cannot, I find it really difficult to tolerate living in a country where the government thinks it's okay um, to let people live it like this, uh, but it also thinks it's okay to send people we don't like to Rwanda. There's something deeply, deeply wrong, Vicky. Um, I've had my go. It's your turn to fix it now. Well, I'll do my best, and I think the the best way that I can play any role is is to keep telling these stories and shining a light on them and it's interesting that you 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 bring up rwanda because i was reflecting on that in a column recently and it did make me think well this is about home too right yeah this is about people who are displaced looking for somewhere to live for whatever reason often because they're fleeing war it's not safe for them to be in their country wars that we are implicated into often by the way and this is about home and who we give asylum to and who we give secure housing to. And I think that as a policy, and I'm not the only person who've said this, religious leaders have said it, the future King of England was not supposed to say it, but has said it, putting people on planes to Rwanda rather than finding somewhere to house them 
to give them a safe home, to give them safe harbour, is one of the least human responses to a global crisis, which is seeing lots of people displaced all over the world because of the climate and, and because of different conflicts. You know, it's really, really ought to make us look in the mirror and question what kind of society we want to be. But it doesn't surprise me because if we aren't prepared to provide people in Britain with safe, secure, stable and affordable housing, then of course our politicians think that something like putting those in need who are in danger on a plane to Rwanda, a country which has its own issues, is okay. Like, it's all connected. It's all connected. And it all comes back to me, to the idea of home. And I think that's why I'm interested in a politics of coalition and compassion. Because I think home is the perfect centre for that. It's a space that is at once intimately personal, but also inherently political. The book, subtitled The People on the Frontline of Britain's housing emergency. There are so many heart-rending stories. Uh, it's called Tenants. It's published by Profile, and it's written by Vicky Spratt. Vicky, thank you so much for your time. And uh, all power to your elbow. Go out and fight, girl. <laughs> thank you so much. Yes, I'll keep. I'll keep writing after a weekend's rest, because as you can probably tell, and anyone who's listening can tell, my brain is definitely in need of one. And we must all rest. That's very important too.